You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, and today we'll be talking to Missy Purcell about a blog post that she authored, Dear Balanced Literacy Teacher. This is an important topic in literacy because we want to normalize the idea that kids can learn how to read with structured literacy instruction instead of our current norm in classrooms, which is that there are struggling readers. With structured literacy instruction, we can cast a wider net to reach all students. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we can't wait to talk to a parent of a child with dyslexia and a former balanced literacy teacher. Yeah, we have Missy Purcell here today, and she wrote a blog post recently that caught our eye called Dear Balanced Literacy Teacher. Um, And she, before that, was a teacher of balanced literacy herself, um, and she now works to encourage educators across the country to embrace the science of reading. So we are so excited to have you here today, Missy. Um, Feel free to tell us anything else about yourself that we don't already know. Yeah, thanks for the introduction, and um, I am super excited to be here today. I am indeed a former balanced literacy teacher um, and could have probably convinced anyone to use it, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but um, I'm also a mom. I have three boys, um, and they are all uh, sadly products of balanced literacy. (laughs) That's another story for another day. Um, Married to my wonderful husband, Mark for over 20 years. And we also have a little puppy that's name is Comet, um, who's probably sleeping close, close by and hopefully won't, um, won't join the podcast today. That's okay. Uh, we don't mind. <laughs> we welcome all family members. Awesome. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Missy. I'm wondering if you could just start us off by telling us a little bit about your son, uh, your current sixth grader and his journey learning to read. Yeah, gosh, um, I'm going to try to condense that down into a, a smaller podcast. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, he, you know, the youngest child um, what kind of just assumed he would follow the path of his older brothers. Um, and just like his older brothers, our house was filled with books. Uh, we, I am a former teacher, so I had every picture book and um, every Eric Carl book, you know, everything that you could <laughs> find that we were, everything was well-read, well-loved. Literacy was just a part of our home. I love reading. I love teaching reading. And so um, I assumed that he would do just as well as his brothers. He went to preschool, uh, loved preschool, and we had a really great preschool. Um, however, when he left preschool, uh, I remember getting a letter from his preschool teacher telling me um, how much they loved him, and they were so sad to see him leave to go to kindergarten. And I remember the words that stung were, we were, we were a little disappointed that he didn't make more progress. And oh. I thought, oh. and that was really the first time I'd I knew there was a problem. And then I'm looking at this paper and he didn't know any of his sounds for his letters. So he had the only letter he knew was M for Matthew. And that was his name. So he heard it all the time. So he knew that mm -mm sound, but that's all he knew. And I knew that was not the same as my older two boys. So I took that knowledge straight into the kindergarten teacher. And I remember her telling me at the first conference, we had fall conferences, 
don't worry. You know, they all develop at their own pace. He's also a little young for his age. He'll catch up. And so I believed it then, but I was still worried because I thought that's just weird. The other two, that was not my experience. Um, and uh, I kept hearing that he'll catch up. I heard that at the end of kindergarten. Um, first grade was a little different. Uh, he didn't catch up. So even though they weren't worried, they put him in reading recovery, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't know at that point that uh, I knew reading recovery as a former teacher. So I was excited that they were going to put him in a program that was going to help him or I thought right. was going to help him. And it's one-on-one. Uh, like that feels like it's like, this is great. He's getting one-on-one support. <laughs> and they make you feel so special because your kid was selected for this special program and not every kid gets into it. Like, which is the dirty little secret of recovery, right? That it's not open to everyone. It's only open to this little, you know, extreme group of kids. Sadly, the ones that actually need something totally different, which I didn't know. And about week 10 of that program, he got, I got a letter from the, from the teacher or the reading recovery teacher letting me know that he was kind of stalled. And she asked me to uh, give him a pep talk. And asked oh, me if no. I was reading to him at home. And so I, I felt a little shamed <laughs> as a former yeah. teacher um, and as a parent, like, oh, we're not we're not doing right, the right thing. And he's not making progress. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of wincing as you're saying each thing, right? Like the letter from preschool, the communication from school. I mean, I'm kind of bracing myself for what you're about to say, because I can just tell by your face, it's not going to be great. And oh, just to hear those things about... Your child, who I'm sure was putting a million percent effort out there. He was. And what we also didn't realize that is that he was putting the effort in, but we were seeing symptoms, but we didn't know it then. Once again, it was one more thing we didn't know. He started becoming obsessed with what he wore. Um, he started getting action plans in first grade. So you got a little first grader who's getting an action plan. Coincidentally, these are behavior plans in my in our district for behaviors in class. Um, they feel serious. They're not really that big of a deal. Like the kids don't know that, but it feels like a big deal because you have to go see the administrator. So, sure. um, you know, he was getting, he got a, an action plan for making armpit noises. <laughs> I can't even oh say gosh. that with a straight face. So, <laughs> and he couldn't write it. So he had to draw a picture of himself making armpit noises um, that was his his bad deed, and then he got in trouble for that. But it was during reading group, and then he started getting sick every day, especially right. on dictation day. They had to write, um, they had to dictate words and sentences, and he failed them every week. And he got big red. I wish you know I could show you, but he got big red ink marks about his letters floating in the air, and um, you know how to write this. And it was just, and then he couldn't even read the teacher's notes, right? So. Um, Weirdly enough, though, he's getting these dictation sheets. He's failing. But in reading recovery, he's got this writing book that none of it's in his own handwriting, which I mm-hmm. thought was weird. It was like all the teacher's handwriting and little letters that he would glue. So he still wasn't getting handwriting instruction and this very specialized instruction. I requested an SST, which in our district is a student support team, to discuss the fact that he's in a special intervention and it's not working. And I was told to wait. Once again, wait till the end. Yeah. See, I'm wondering if you could like just for our audience's sake, well, just some people know this already. Some people don't. But just let's talk about you've mentioned balanced literacy. You probably you know a lot about it and reading recovery. I'm wondering if you could just talk about those just just those programs, like not even with what your son experienced or anything, but just 
what are the what are they like? Like what is what what's included in those programs? Yeah, well, from just prior teaching experience, balanced literacy is um, in a nutshell a hybrid version of whole language, uh, which I didn't know when I was trained. But it was this attempt to bring balance between the two worlds of whole language and like a phonics only approach, right? And so it's this 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 merging of the two. I call it a band aid. Honestly, it's my nickname for it. It's the phonics band aid. So when, you know, the whole language folks kind of back in the late 80s kind of got called out for having this missing piece, um, there was this attempt to put a Band-Aid on, also to come in alignment with um, some of the legislation that was going on in the country at that time. And so uh, let's add what's missing. Um, But the unfortunate part to that was that it was really just a Band-Aid and there was nothing systematic about it. Um, There was nothing explicit about it. So it still depended upon a teacher noticing what a child was missing, which is hard to do in every single guided reading group, right? You're only noticing what you have, what you're seeing in this particular book you're reading. Um, And then to respond to that. So there's not systematic, it's responsive. Uh, So you're only fixing the problem before you, not the core problem of we've missed a lot of skills along the way. I need to take this kid through a systematic scope and sequence so that they can learn all these skills. Um, and they, and I know they learned them because I taught them with direct instruction. Um, and so there was nothing like that in a balanced literacy classroom. Uh, when I taught, um, I had, um, you know, a mini lesson every day. I had my beautiful anchor charts um, hanging everywhere, which is probably so overwhelming to all my poor <laughs> sensory kids. I wish I could go back and apologize to everyone. But, you know, so and then you have time for them to work independently while you're pulling kids in groups and you're working either in guided reading or maybe conferences if you're doing writing time. But um So you're not getting even every kid every day. Uh, You're getting a small percentage. And then it's so rushed that there, I often found that when I was doing kind of reading, when I, the part that mattered most, the phonics part was so rushed and so limited to the responsive teaching um, that I was, I I always felt like I was missing something too. Um, And that the kids that needed to get better weren't getting better. Um, And then reading recovery um, is just, I like to call it the stepchild of balanced literacy, but really I kind of think it it might have existed somewhere in the realm first. Um, <laughs> and then some of these other programs grew out of it. But uh, it's it's just that the whole idea that I can take a kid in a smaller setting and do more of the same. I can give them more cues. Um, you know, I can help them look at the pictures more. I can cue them to the first letter. Um, and I can kind of let them look at the context clues and see if they can figure the words out. It turned reading into a guessing game. Uh, which for Matthew was detrimental because reading really was a, a game of substituting and guessing or skipping. So he was either skipping, substituting, or just flat out guessing um, what was in front of him, and which comes from those cues that are found in both of those programs. What I'm hearing you say, just to recap, is that balanced literacy held him back from reading by guessing, by looking at the pictures, by looking at the first letters, and then he would guess the rest of the word, he would skip, he would substitute words, anything you want to add to that? I mean, that is 100% exactly his experience. And the the sad part of it is that 
I mean, our, our district was, is a, I used to call us the balanced literacy empire, right? And so it was everywhere. It didn't matter if you were in, you know, tier one, tier two, or tier three, you were going to get some version of balanced literacy. So for Matthew, as he continued to struggle, um, his experience was, let me put him in more of the same methodology of instruction, and let's see if it works this time. Mm-hmm. Which is not the definition of insanity. Yeah. Doing the same thing over again. <laughs> Yes. That isn't working. Like, yeah. Yeah. Even more of it. Do even more. Yeah. More. Right. And do a one-on-one. Yeah. <laughs> do more. More, yeah. more, more. <laughs> and, oh. and I would even say, too, that the very program, the resources, our, our district uses Fontes uses and Pinnell, which is um, a program designed to support balanced literacy. And um, the very program itself kept the teachers, ironically, from seeing where he was struggling, even right. though it was supposed to be responsive. Um, we had all of these running records, right? They did a, a, a BAS every year and uh, he was zigzagging all over the place. There was some progress then he was not progressing. And, um, and even from year to year, like one teacher would say he was a level H and the next teacher would say he was a level D. And, I thought, gosh, how can you like not, how can you be able to read and then not be able to read? That was one of my first clues. It's like, even the very assessment is somehow handicapping our teachers from knowing that this isn't working. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. When we talk to teachers who have moved from a balanced literacy to systemic phonics instruction, they, they, systematic, sorry. Um, you know, that that's what they actually say. They're like, oh my gosh, now I can see, I see where, where their gaps are. I see what they need. I can help them get what they need and, and we can keep moving before it was for the teachers, a guessing game of where the students were just like it was a guessing game for the students when they were reading. (laughs) Right. Right. It's just a constant series of, um, everyone really not knowing where we were headed. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of everyone fumbling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So your son, Missy, we know this already, but, um, eventually was diagnosed with dyslexia. Um, somewhere in this journey. Can you tell like when that happened? How did that happen? Yeah. So fast forward to second grade. Uh, he has exited um, reading recovery. We're still not reading on grade level. Um, now we're in second grade. He does get an assessment from the school and um, they, although they won't diagnose, they did um, detect um, um, in the in the testing that they did a full comprehensive um, psychological educational exam that he had uh, an SLD in reading. And I was kind of pulled to the side and said, most likely dyslexia, but we don't say that word here. You know, so it's like the bad, you know, naughty word at school. So um, he um, was, was semi-diagnosed, I guess you would say, at least flagged at that point. And sadly, though, that didn't equal anything different from him. And he was actually pulled out of his regular classroom for language arts at that point to go into what was called a resource classroom, where I later learned there were 24 students. There were more in that room than his regular classroom. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That's like a whole class of students itself. Yeah. Yes. And this was tier three or four, right, special education. And he's getting LLI. And which is this, you know, remediation of Fontes and Pinnell. It's another program. It's balanced literacy at at its heart. I was told that it was designed for kids with dyslexia by the teacher when I questioned. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I'm starting to wake up. uh, And he wasn't really officially diagnosed, though, until fourth grade. So it would be two more years of him being in a school setting, getting balanced literacy, even in the special ed setting, uh, before he was 
tested privately and, and diagnosed. Uh, and at that point, the sad part was we had now standardized tests that showed that he had regressed in ev- almost every single area from that test done in 2019 um, to the one done two years later. So he had totally regressed. And so there was, we had hard evidence that even though their paperwork said progressing as expected every single nine weeks, he was not. In fact, he was actually drowning. Um, and I think the hardest part for me, I always get a little, I'll try not to be, I'm going to try to keep it mm, together today. But um, <laughs> the hardest part for me and that was there was a social emotional screener and he told the psychologist that his greatest goal in life was to learn to read. Mm. And this was a fourth grader. And for me, that was, um, that's when I thought something's not right with what I know to be right. I loved what I did as a teacher. And I think my classroom was a happy, joyful place because I'm just that kind of person. And I I do think hopefully kids felt safe in my room, but they certainly didn't get what they needed because I was staring at a child who was the product of this. And he was not proficient. Not only was he not proficient, he was regressing and no one knew it. No one knew it. And that's what was always so perplexing to me was that bounce literacy, you know, really champions that we're responsive. We're responsive. You got to know the kid and respond. Well, we had five years to know this kid. He'd been the same school for five years and he didn't know how to read and no one knew it. That test was shocking to everyone in the room. And I think even the school for that meeting we had to discuss those individuals that, you know, the private evaluation there was, it was silent. No one could say anything because the numbers spoke for themselves. It's heartbreaking. It is. I'm, well, first, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure that is really hard to go back and think about. Um, but hopefully your story is helping educators out there and, t- and parents out there listening. And I'm wondering if we can turn a little bit to what he actually did need. And really, what do most students actually need? You might share that with us. Yeah. Well, I learned during this process, I started investigating. Um, <laughs> that's what I do when I'm really stressed. I turn into this super like, <laughs> let me look this up. So that's well, that's look- what I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me Google that, right? And Facebook Gotta be like that. a type A thing. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I started joining these Facebook groups about anything with dyslexia, whether it be nationwide or locally, or I started... You know, when I was in these groups, I found these amazing people um, that I later rec- learned were called advocates. <laughs> and um, and then I learned through that about this whole world, this term that kept coming up, the science of reading and structured literacy. And then I'm just reading and reading. And I found this one blog that compared the two. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a moment as a teacher... Um, especially when you care so much about people's kids where you're like, they went through my years of classroom and I was a, a, a fourth and fifth grade teacher. So I was kind of like a last hope before middle school right. and they didn't get what they needed. They left, they came in not reading and they left not reading. And I learned that Matthew didn't need that any more than those kids needed it. He needed um, something called structured literacy, which I, I call like the, um, it's like the, it's like a, um, oh, my brain just stopped working. 
an antonym, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, there we go. It's an antonym for for balanced literacy. So when people try to blend it again, I'm like, you can't, because it's literally the opposite. It literally is not connected at all. You almost have to deconstruct what you know about literacy. You have to break it down and say, that right now, I'm going to put it over here in a corner and let me just see what this is. And I learned that it was explicit. That means someone directly teaches my kid what he needs to know. And they follow a scope and sequence. Um, I learned the term systematic phonics, um, which was different than balanced literacy because that's analytical phonics. That's where I look and see and I teach you what I notice you don't know. And systematic was that I'm going to test you on all these skills and then I'm going to systematically walk you through all of them to make sure you've mastered them. Can I just add one thing right here? Mm -hmm. It is the difference between looking at the child in front of you and then bringing in the, let's say phonics in this case, right? Then bringing in the phonics rather than knowing this is what kids need to know to read and then teaching the students. So it's it's knowing the science first and then applying it to your students in a systematic structured way and then filling in gaps from there versus looking at a child, which... On, to be honest, as a f- former primary teacher, is so much more manageable. Yeah, thinking, okay, so I need daunting. to know the science, and then I can teach students in a systematic way, and then I need to fill in small gaps. Versus, let me see what thirty kids need to know sitting in front of me, and they all need something different. Right. Like, for I'm just setting myself up for failure. That's why, like, I just want to say that, that that is what that makes me said, You you probably have like 20 minutes to do that with right (laughs) each group of kids. Right. Not even the right time or enough time or, yeah. Anyway, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Missy. Oh, no. But like, even just to piggyback, you've got 28 kids too. Or one year I had 32, which is terrible, but. 100%. uh, Yeah. I, I remember getting all that data at the beginning of the year and thinking, what do I do with all this? Especially when it was a little bit hard to swallow data. Like I've got kids who aren't reading on grade level in the fifth grade and I've got to, I've got to get them to be proficient leaders, readers before they go to middle school. Um, you're right. Yeah. It's, it's like you, uh, try to play the game without knowing the rules. Right. Um, so you're yeah. just kind of all, you're doing all these things for trying to figure it out. And if you just known how to do it to begin with, you could have had the systematic approach to it. And, uh, Matthew needed that. All kids need it because it ensures that all kids get a strong foundation in the skills or the code, the English language. They get all of that. But dyslexic kids need it times 100. They need more repetition and more time to review and reverse drills. Um, And someone who's really kind of approaching their learning from a diagnostic approach. Um, But I think that a kid like my kid and many other dyslexic kids, uh, if they had gotten a foundation of structured literacy in those early years, um, the, the need for such intense remediation later in life would not be there because they would have a better foundation to start with. Uh, when, when you get a kid like mine who's had five years of balanced literacy and finally stumbles into like real structured literacy with a highly trained teacher, um, you know, he made, he's making progress, but it's slow and it is, um, hard and frustrating and it didn't have to be that way for him and so many others. It seems like we're just doing such a disservice to our students and to parents. Um, well, and families and communities and I mean, honestly, educators too, right? Yes. 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 It's- 
Yes. When I when I met with Matthew's fourth grade teacher, this was during the COVID year, right? This is 2020. And I went in and I wanted to meet because I wanted to see, uh, they were piloting uh, Wilson, which is an OG structured literacy approach. And I wanted to see if Matthew was going to be in that. And she said, no, I only have LLI and I'm not trained to work with kids with dyslexia. This was the special ed teacher. <laughs> so I you know. can- That's bre- I know. It breaks right. my heart. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, and I said, well, what is Matthew doing in your class? You know, like, um, and not to be mean to her cause she was a lovely person and I think she wanted to help my kid. Uh, but she did not have what she needed to help my kid. So that's not fair to her. It's not fair to Matthew. Right. Yeah. Well, and there's just, so many, Oh, sorry. There's so many programs out there. Like how yeah. do we know what's what? Sorry. Yeah. Mas, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to, um, back up a little bit because, you know, you mentioned that what he needed was the structured literacy and that that teacher had structured literacy, but wasn't, you know, giving it to your student who had dyslexia. Like it, I just want to make sure for our audience, we're really clear. Like it is the structured literacy, all that a student with dyslexia, not all, but is that mostly what a student with dyslexia needs to, to meet their needs or, or, or is it more than that? Or is it beyond just the structured literacy? I think it needs to come with a highly trained teacher. That's something that I really, um, really talk a lot about when I talk to people about making this change is that you've got to train the teachers, um, the, the program, the OG program that you choose, the structural literacy program that you choose, um, is great, but in the hands of an untrained teacher, it's going to, I think there's a tendency if we don't train our teachers, um, for them to keep blending and to lean into what's comfortable and what they know. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I think, I think there's a tendency there where we can really do some harm, meaningful, me, we mean well, but we can still do some harm. The, the, the teacher is our greatest resource literally and what they know and how they can take those tools. Uh, I've watched Matthew's private tutor teach him how to read with a whiteboard and a dry erase marker. She, and I I know she has a scope and sequence hidden somewhere that I didn't know about, but, but (laughs) she's following, but she's just, you know, doing this thing and it's amazing and it works. Um, and so she didn't have some fancy, um, manual or books. She had a very simple tool in her hand. But what she did have was this knowledge of, of how the brain learns to read. That's what she had. Right. And it reminds me of um, when we had Angie Hanlon on Laurie, who talked Mm -hmm. about those repetitions, right. And know it, you know, in the hands of a teacher who might not know, they might do it twice and say, Oh, they're just still not getting it. Versus like, if you do know, you know that they might just need this a few more times, maybe a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe 100 more times. Yeah. We're going to keep going until we get it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Especially when you consider a kid who's coming out of a balanced literacy environment who has depended upon cues. Right. And they're, and it's just hardwired into them to skip and substitute, which was my son's problem. He was a master at substituting and skipping. And in an untrained eye, he could look like he was keeping up. Oh, um, it is very tricky. Yes. You, I mean, you, yeah, once you learn to see it, you can see it. So you can see them substituting and they're just guessing. Um, but it is so obvious once you know they are guessing based on that first letter. Yes. 
Yes. Yes. Cause uh, I, I'll, I remember uh, there were a couple like pivotal moments in this, this awakening for me. So I, I kind of started figuring out these groups, right. And I'm researching, I'm finding out structured literacy sites of reading. I'm, I'm ordering books <laughs> and just, you know, I'm reading chapters and pay, you know, and I'm asking questions and I, and then I start emailing the school. <laughs> I'm like, hey, what are you using to teach Matthew? And I was told, oh, LLI, because it's great for comprehension. Um, And we're going to use Wilson on the side to teach him some phonics. So they were. You know what I think about that? You know, when like um, you have a fraction and it's like two over two, it's like a whole number, right? It it crosses itself out. Yes. 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 No, I mean, like you're doing not anything helpful. Yes. And you're doing something. Kind of helpful, but it doesn't really matter because <laughs> yes. you're still doing things that aren't helpful. And then the kid's getting a complete mixed message. And I'm not sure that it really actually works. No, it doesn't because there's such an emphasis on comprehension, especially in the upper grades, that um, when a child is missing foundational skills, the other part of, you know, if you're familiar with the reading rope, but if you're, if they're missing those foundational skills, um, we're putting the cart before the horse when mm-hmm. we try to focus on comprehension so much. Yes, we can focus on listening comprehension through some great read alouds in a rich literature environment, which environment, which we should have mm-hmm. as teachers. But if we're putting such an emphasis on comprehension and we're totally ignoring these poor decoding skills in the background that are leading to a lack of comprehension, um, then we are doing the child a disservice. Also the teachers, because there's a false sense of, of achievement and success that's not there. Um, and I heard it, I heard it over and over from so many teachers, like I'm doing this and this, I'm blending this and this. And I kept saying, but this is a comprehensive program over here. It really does work. Like there's all these really smart people who researched it and studied it and they know it works and they've seen it work. And I think we should just do all 10 parts of this lesson. And they constantly kept blending. And I, at one point said, this is harming my kid because, um, during the pandemic, he was digital and I was watching, this was the special ed, you know, remediation class. And it was just, um, basically the first 20 days of, of reading workshop from the Fontes of Pinnell book where you teach kids that reading is thinking. I can, I can recite those lessons cause I taught them so much. And I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. Like he, <laughs> his goals for decoding and fluency and accuracy and, I kept, then I started asking, like, what decoding goals are you working on? Which, which ones is he missing? And I couldn't get the answers. And so I, I started seeing right before me, um, this is not working. And I'd see him substitute and skip and be praised for reading so good. When he did a running record, he would be, boy, I'm so proud of you. You've, you've come so far. And I thought, no, he's just learned to guess and play the system. He's been programmed to use these cues. And yeah, I guess if you taught him the cues and he's doing that, he actually is doing what you're looking for. But that's not equaling a proficient reader. Uh, Because what they couldn't see is as he was reading, his legs were shaking uncontrollably, which I now know was anxiety. And as soon as the class ended, he'd shut the computer down and have 
a complete meltdown, uh, just overwhelmed with all this information. Or I had teachers call me and say, he knew this this morning. We were looking on these word patterns. But when I tested him later in the day, he didn't know it. And that was this great mystery to them. And I was like, that's called dyslexia. And it means it's not mapped in his brain. Right. So, And I didn't have a degree in this. This is just me, <laughs> you know, reading all these books and just educating myself on what my kid needed. Um, so, Yeah. It was a an eye-opening year and it just ignited in me this passion to be like, what would I want someone to tell me if I was still in the classroom? What would help me change from what I thought was the best way to what I now know right in front of me is really actually hurting kids. Mm-hmm. And you wrote about this in your blog. Would you mind sharing that with our listeners? You've mentioned four points. Yeah, um, I my whole my whole the reason I talk a lot about this is that I want I want teachers to feel supported and have an easy way to move from where they are to what's next. And even if you take one step in the right direction, you're taking a step to help a kid be less anxious, to be less overwhelmed, and to move toward proficiency. And some of these things are pretty easy to do. There's, it's kind of what I did in this process. Um, I think the first one is listen to stories of failure. Um, I am one of thousands of parents of a kid like Matthew. I, I, that was shocking to me. I started listening to parents. I found groups, uh, you know, decoding to support groups and decoding advocacy groups. And our stories are eerily the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, waiting for them to fail. Uh, years of interventions that did not work. Um, and... Uh, it's so almost like in some circles, it's easy to pretend like we don't exist and that this isn't happening or that we're rare. Like I'm, uh, she's just the exception because she's that mom. I, I was going to say, like, you kind of end up like being a nudge, like being, oh, well, here comes that mom. Mm-hmm. And really you're not like, you're not being that mom. You're just trying to get what you need for your, for not only for your kid, but for lots of other kids who maybe don't have parents who have that information or maybe who are acting out in other ways and who are presenting in other ways. Right. And Mm -hmm. they're misdiagnosed, I would Mm say. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. A lot of kids with dyslexia and reading struggles, um, especially if they're boys or even some of our minority children and our black or brown friends, um, we we focus on what they are doing and how they're acting in the classroom versus what's going on inside the child. And that those behaviors might actually be communication of, I need help. I need you to teach me how to read. I need you to teach me how to do this because I'm not getting it the way you're teaching me. And um, I mean, I know with my own child, there was a focus on behavior action plans, you know, and then his own behaviors, if I'm sick, and then he became obsessed with what he was wearing. Um, so we had a lot of behaviors. And um, I, I learned that so many kids are just like Matthew, where and they and they have been delayed the right to read for years. And it's no wonder that by the time they're in third, fourth, and fifth grade, that they're so frustrated. Um, uh, kids biting their fingers to the point of bleeding um, and acting out in rage or shutting down completely. It looks, you're right. It looks so different for every kid, um, but it's there nonetheless. And if you heard just a few of our stories, um, I think that there's an empathy that's created there that is hard to ignore. um, And I think can become a catalyst for 
let me find out more. Let me see how that happens. And do I have any Matthews in my room? The chances are you do because, you know, some studies say that as many as 20% of our kids have dyslexia. And so at least one in five in every classroom is in this, but they're often not identified and they're silently struggling. I was going to say that, Missy, and not only that, right, there's students who aren't identified as dyslexic, right? So you think, oh, this is just a rare thing. Only a few of kids have dyslexia, but actually more probably do that aren't identified. But then you also have a whole group of students who may or may not have dyslexia, regardless whether they do or don't, or are on some kind of like (laughs) spectrum of the dyslexia spectrum. They are struggling to read, right? We know from nationwide data that what a third of our students in across the nation are reading proficiently. So, you know, you have even more students who are just not getting what they need in the classroom. So there's stories of failure that go, you know, beyond just dyslexia and really hit probably majority of students and families. Yeah. I mean, this supersedes dyslexia for sure. I mean, I have three kids. I like to say um, three of my three boys kind of fit on the the Nancy Young's reading, you know, uh, reading <laughs> ladder. I have a top kid who just seemed to magically learn to read. Uh, he's just, um, I don't know. I don't even know how that happened. Um, and then, I actually thought I was so good at what I was doing that it was me, right? I read him so much and I did all the things right. And he just magically learned to read. And then I have a middle child who's actually in the middle of of the ladder. He needed direct instruction, never got it. And now we're seeing that play out a lot. He's learning a second language in the ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And he's struggling because he doesn't know um, some of the basic nuts and bolts of the English language. He doesn't know what nouns and verbs are in the ninth grade or articles. And, um, and so when he's trying to conjugate those into a second language, he's running into some barriers. So, I mean, he fits very much into the middle. He needed this. uh, You can see it very much in his writing and his spelling. Um, And then my youngest falls into that bottom where he has to have it. It's not, it's not negotiable. So yeah, this affects so many kids, which is why this conversation needs to happen outside of the special ed setting. Um, And it's why every teacher needs to um, get professional development in this area Mm -hmm. so that even across content areas, we all have to hold our piece of the reading and writing instruction, regardless of whether this is our primary subject that we teach. Um, and I know. I'm, I'm totally biased. But when I took letters training, I was just like, I think every single teacher, no matter grade level content area, I think every single teacher should get this. I think they should get it in college, but <laughs> that's a different soapbox. <laughs> that's a different podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, for uh, sure. <laughs> All right. So step one is listen to the stories of failure. Yes. And I think you kind of alluded to your step two as well. <laughs> yes. Join a community of learners. I mean, that's what I did. Um, you know, we we are somewhat the product of our environment. So I, I, you know, you mentioned education. I went to the University of Georgia and my entire educational experience um, for my degrees were in balanced literacy. I, I, I was Lucy Calkins and uh, Stephanie Harvey and Nancy Atwell because I had a kind of some um, upper you know grade experience, and so all of the greats at that time were who influenced me. Uh, our school, uh, what, when I moved to Gwinnett County, that's my district that I taught in and still live in. Um, we are about literacy, so we moved into Fontas and Pinnell. Um, actually got to attend uh, a training with Lucy Calkins, you know. Um, and so we were very much for reading and writing tapped into that. So those were my influencers. Yeah. Those were the books I, I read. When, 
And when everyone around you is speaking that language, then why would you even think? Yeah, yeah. There's a different way. But, you know, I had my, you know, F&P Bible, I called it. It was my guided reading book. And I had all these things. In the middle of all this, I had I had attended a professional development one summer um, that I'm reading it. And I was like, this is all structured literacy. Uh, there was this lady in our state that provided these reading instruction, professional developments. And I had written all these notes, even like about dyslexia and um, the word decoding was there, which I didn't know for my college instruction. I didn't know that word. I called it word calling, um, Mm. which I now know is a sleight of hand for for kind of ignoring that. But anyway, I, you know, I was shocked because I thought this was all right in front of me. But here's why it's important to join a community of learners. It was there and I got great training. I went back to my school and that was not anywhere on my school setting. It wasn't, no one was speaking that language. There was no place for me to implement it, no support, uh, no one to help guide me in the process. And so uh, joining a community of learners is huge to um, start reading um, some books. Uh, I think the Dyslexia Advocate was one book that I that I read, and uh, that was a game changer for me. And uh, just, just join... Um, some community books, Facebook pages, um, or start reading uh, if you're really into some really hard stuff to read, uh, some of the cognitive scientist reports. Um, and um, I think once you start realizing and finding that there are some friends in this world and they're on the same journey as you, it changes um, the game because you now feel like you're not one like an island at your school. You have a community. And if you're frustrated at your school, take it to the community and share with them. And you're going to find a ton of support in those groups just to cheer you on as you learn. Yeah, I think we've seen that on social media, uh, both our own social media. <laughs> we've seen it, but you know, the science of reading, what I should have learned in college, Facebook uh, that one. group, huge one that you see it all the time of like, you know, I'm the only person at my school, but thank goodness I'm here and learning. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it makes a big difference. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, Melissa, I think like I'm the only one at my school and I'm someone who knows about this. And I think that that person would be aligned to Missy's third point, which would be advocate for change in your district or even in your school, right? Like small steps matter. Yes. Yeah. This is huge. Cause I, I, I want teachers to know that I'm, I'm champ, I'm, I'm, I'm cheering for you. That's the word. I'm cheering for you. Uh, but, but I know it's easy to feel like sometimes in this and what we call the reading wars that you're, um, kind of a casualty or you're being attacked. Um, but I feel like we're not going to make any progress if we continue down that path. We've got to find a way to come together and, and talk and get some common ground. And then when you are that person who has finally had a kind of a turnaround, right? And you now see your eyes are opened. Um, I, I call it like your Saul to Paul moment, right? <laughs> um, but when you see, uh, oh my goodness, this is so different and this is so critical and I want to move toward this and I'm embracing this. Um, start being that voice of change in your environment. Um, we have, uh, we are in my district. This is kind of exciting. We're, we're beginning to make this change, right? So this past year, I, um, they, we met with some of the district leaders and we proposed what would this would look like. Surprisingly, 
They had their own plan already after a lot of conversations that was very similar to what we thought would be the perfect world for change. And all the teachers over the summer had their first introductory course into OG, just pure Orton-Gillingham. And um, and they're all now moving into a letters training. And of course, there's a lot of chatter online in the teacher groups of, you know, oh, more training and I, this, I, I'm overwhelmed already. I have too many kids. This is a hard time to teach. This is post-pandemic or actually we're still in the middle of it. Um, and so all that to say, um, it's easy for people to get negative and for this to go off the rails before it even gets going in the right yeah. direction. So if you have already made that change and you're one of those teachers, be the voice of positivity, be the voice that's listening, that hears and kind of then re-explains it in the way that they can hear it. Mm-hmm. Um and champion for a full hard right turn in the opposite direction <laughs> and not a reblending. Cause that's my biggest fear is that in order to pacify some of the uncomfortable tensions that we're going to try to keep reblending. And that is not going to work. We've been doing that for decades. It's time to make a hard turn and embrace a new way to teach. Uh, I, I took a, uh, I did the read three, the, the read 360 from Tennessee, the first level of training mm-hmm. that all the teachers are getting, which is kind of cool. If you're in that state who you're doing great things. But one of the questions to get my final certification was what I would do if I was like at the lunch table and people were speaking negatively about the science of reading. And I oh, thought, wow. right. I thought That's they great. get it. They get it because they realize the power of the voice from within. Um, right. And so if you are someone who's made that change, you can be that power. Show up at your board meetings. We, uh, we a group of teachers and uh, former teachers and parents speak almost monthly at our board meetings, our board of education meetings, and teachers are joining. Man, your voice is critical in those spaces. When you get up and you say what we're saying and you're on the ground floor, the district leaders listen and they listen to these teachers. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons this began to change is that we came together to make the change versus fighting against each other. So that's a huge change that you can make. I think that's, that's such amazing. a good point because change is so hard, but like you said, you can't just, we can't just keep putting band-aids on it. Like we have to really make a change, but, but change is hard. So we, we all have to be in it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so good. And I really love your last and your final point. Um, can I read it? And then I'll let you elaborate on it. I get goosebumps yeah. because it should be the norm, right? Expect every kid to learn to read. That's it. Expect every kid should learn to read and not the other way around. Like, I just think I remember being, again, a primary teacher, a fifth grade teacher and thinking, of course, I'll have struggling students. Wouldn't it be an incredible world if the norm was, of course, most of my kids can read like that should be the thought. Right. And I think that that's what we're stepping into. Yeah. I mean, gosh, what a game changer if every teacher left college Or if that was the vision statement that was cast at the beginning of every school year, expect every kid to learn to read and know the part you play in making that happen. And and I think the initial success in that is that teachers have to believe that that's possible. And we have studies, the National Institute of Health tells us that, you know, 95% of students have the cognitive ability to learn to read. So chances are every kid in your classroom can learn to read. And we, for so long, me included, I accepted failure. I wasn't happy with it. 
I wasn't. I remember having got big conversations with my principal about how the fact that I was giving kids A's in reading, but they were in fifth grade reading on a second grade reading level. And something felt weird about that because I was I communicating. I completely understand that. <laughs> yeah. I get that too. Right? Totally. I was communicating to the next year's teacher that I had a proficient reader. Right. But I didn't. Right. And, you know, I was like, can we like have truth in grading here? Can their reading level drive their grade? And then it was all the how we're going to, you know, that was not a good thing. Um, <laughs> and yeah, thankfully, that, there's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, if, if we, if we believe, not only believe that they can read because we have evidence, we have studies that show us that that is true. But then we know what to do because we have been highly trained, which goes back to the prior points. Um, then we can walk in confidently um, every year knowing that I am ready to teach the kids that have entered in my door. Um, and I also, I'm, I just feel so strongly about this, but my son shouldn't be a unicorn in this world of trying to make sure that every kid can read. Um Every kid deserves the chance to read regardless of how they arrive at our classroom doors. Mm -hmm. I don't know what their prior knowledge is. I don't know what they've been exposed to, what their home life is like, if they've gone on a thousand trips, if someone read to them, if they happen to have the right teachers the year before me. But I do know what's before me. If that kid can't read, if I'm equipped with great teaching skills, um, that are aligned with science, that are evidence-based to produce proficient readers, I know that I have an opportunity that year to move that kid toward proficiency. And my child is super lucky. This past year, he was afforded structural literacy all day. Even his math and social studies and science and his even his connections teachers are all trained at Orton-Gillingham. And he learned to read in one year, one year, it took yeah. five years to get there. That could have happened in kindergarten. He had the ability all along. You guys have teacher, if kids in your classrooms every year who are sitting there waiting for you to know how to teach them and then move them there. It is possible. Um, so let that be your mantra this year that every kid can learn to read. And I want to pursue training or take the training I've been privileged to get and give it to every kid in front of me. Um, that's the best skill you can give every kid because it affects every part of their future life. Absolutely. Um, oh, well, that felt like a mic drop moment. <laughs> it's a, we're so glad that you wrote this blog. We're so yes. glad that we connected with you about it. Thank you for your passion and everything that you're doing for your own child and also for children all across this world that that need this, that need this message to get into their classrooms and schools and yeah. districts. So thank you. And, and understanding like what the teachers are experiencing to know mm -hmm. that it's not, it's not necessarily an easy road to make these changes, but it's possible. Yeah. Necessary. <laughs> yes. Yes. All well, right. Oh, go I, ahead, Missy. Well, I just want to say thank you to you, but also the teachers that are listening. Um, because I want you to know that there are those of us in the trenches who are advocating hard for change, but we really are your cheerleaders and we want to work together. We want to be kind of those bridge builders um, because together we are so much stronger um, yeah. and together we can really ensure that every kid can read. Absolutely. 
It's true. Well, <laughs> we're we're almost out of time, and I want to make sure before we wrap up, we get to ask you some of the fun questions too. <laughs> so hard left turn for us to some fun questions, if that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. The first question is: These are just quick response questions. What do you love to read? Gosh, I love to read just about everything. I mean, <laughs> ironically, uh, God, I mean, I'll read a cereal box if it's in front of me. I was that kid. Um, but I'm reading, I mean, right now I'm reading Looking for Heroes, which is a, a book about a kid who wrote letters to oh. dyslexic people so that he could learn how they became successful. So that's great. But then I also love a good uh, historical fiction, a good trashy beach novel. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. who doesn't? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going to make sure I link that. I'm linking it right now in our I show know. notes. Awesome. I was like, I was like, put that on my, in my shopping cart. <laughs> All right. What do you love to watch? Uh, gosh, I right now am watching, or I just finished watching like the first few series of a new series called Bad Sisters. Uh, it's on Apple TV and I would highly recommend it. If you loved uh, Desperate Housewives, Oh, oh okay. Gosh, yeah. It's not exactly <laughs> like that, but it has that um, underlying theme, that feel of all these layers of. There's a lot going on with all the all the sisters, and uh, <laughs> they got everything from like affairs to murder to uh, just narcissistic behavior to um, mystery detective. I mean, it's just all over the place. It's great. It takes place, I think. Maybe in Ireland or Brit or England, so they have a little bit of an accent, which I always appreciate. So, oh yes, yeah. I need to turn my closed captioning on though for that. So yes, I can yes, yeah, <laughs> follow along for sure. That's for good. sure. Build your fluency while you watch. Yeah. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. What do you love to listen to? A uh, podcast. I mean, but I, I have a wide variety too. I mean, I listen to you guys, obviously. Um, and I love the science of reading podcast, but I mean, on a personal level, I, I got into, um, I started listening to Dr. Death a few years ago, which is that terrible doctor that, you know, paralyzed a bunch of people in Texas is awful. But that led into a whole series of just murder mystery podcasts. Weird things. Weird yeah, things. I get that. It like dominoes and you're suddenly like, I don't know, I'm listening to a weird murder in North Carolina and like a family. I think yeah, I'm with you. I do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, I'm pretty eclectic. I will literally, I mean, I think I also listen to like the history of tequila and like, <laughs> so that's very important. I totally get that. <laughs> I think most teachers would probably approve of that one. So. <laughs> All right, last question. Why do you do what you love for education and specifically literacy? Yeah, uh, because I, I think I said this earlier, but I'm going to just repeat it. I, I want Matthew's story to not be unique. Um, and I desperately want it to not be repeated and we have a solution and I want that word to get out. And I think the more people that know it, the less chances of his story being repeated. Uh, we want to create, I've said this before in another blog, but there's that whole term of the Matthew effect. And, um, but I want to rewrite that and let the effect be that every kid learns to read, that we don't keep widening that gap. So that's what pushes me. All the kids left behind who still aren't getting what they need. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are a lot of them. So mm -hmm. we all have work to do. Yeah. <laughs> Lots Until of work. then we'll keep, we'll keep elevating stories like yours. So thank yeah. you so much. And we're just so glad that you're here with us and you keep writing your blog and please stay in touch. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for elevating our voices and just literacy. You guys are 
I said this earlier, but you're impacting kids in ways you'll never know. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Literacy Lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday. Sign up to stay connected with us at literacypodcast.com. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.